Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable discussion. In this program, the opioid epidemic in New Jersey, prevention and harm reduction. This program is the first of a three-part series. It was recorded on Friday, June 22, 2018 at the Douglas Student Center at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. In many ways, New Jersey's become a national model for its response to the ongoing opioid epidemic, with significant public dollars allocated to treatment and recovery programs under former Governor Chris Christie, providers are eager to explore new clinical options for prevention and care. But the challenge continues to grow. Opioids killed more than 1,600 state residents in 2016. Now, powerful new drug cocktails are driving that number even higher. Overdose reversal drugs are becoming less effective and treatment centers remain overwhelmed. However, New Jersey may be at a turning point. While many Christie initiatives are now underway, Governor Phil Murphy has suspended $102 million in opioid program funding, more than half of what the former governor committed in his final months, and pledged to redirect these dollars into evidence-based priorities of his own. In this first of three programs, we'll explore the medical and legislative dimensions of prevention and harm reduction. In this program, we'll hear a keynote presentation by Ashley Koning, Assistant Research Professor and Director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. Dr. Koning will discuss a recent poll taken by the Rutgers Eagleton Center on opioid abuse in New Jersey. Professor Koning's slides will be available to you for download and review at njspotlight.com. Following the keynote presentation, we'll hear a panel discussion. Joining us for the panel discussion are Dr. Sharif El-Nahal, Commissioner of the State of New Jersey's Department of Health, Kathy Ahern O'Brien, Executive Director of Hyacinth.org, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, Chairman of Emergency Medicine and Chief Innovation Officer, St. Joseph's Health, and a member of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Pain Management Task Force, and Dr. Raymond Solka, the founding chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health and a professor of psychiatry, behavioral health, and pediatrics at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. He's also the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Jersey Shore University Medical Center. The panel is moderated by Lilo Stainton, healthcare writer for NJ Spotlight. At the lectern to open the program is John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is John Mooney. I'm uh, one of the founders of NJ Spotlight and um, really thrilled to have you all here for what is a, you know, an enormous topic. Um, one, we've, we've done something like 40 or 50 of these roundtables over the last eight years uh, in existence, but uh, this is certainly an issue that hits closer to home than, than practically, if, if not any of the other ones we've talked about. Um, I think uh, for, for many, if not all in this room, it, it uh, has touched us personally, professionally. I was talking to someone, someone earlier about the issues of opioid abuse and, um, and treatment in the workforce as well. And so um, I, it's, it's really um, thrilling to have this discussion and, and for Spotlight to be contributing to it. I think it's, a, it's an honor on our part. Um, as such, we don't typically, um, we're, we're often doing one-offs on topics. We're actually going to be doing three panels on um, this issue, this crisis, uh, over the course of the next six months. Um, this one, as you know, is, is focusing on prevention. We will be doing an event in Hamilton uh, on September 14th, which will focus on treatment. 
Um, and then probably in mid to late October, we'll be doing one probably in the northern end of the state and on all these, you know, stay tuned, uh, but in the northern end of the state on recovery issues. So um, it's an enormous topic that we're uh, putting a lot of resources to and, uh, and deservedly so, I think. Um, before we get going with our program, I also just want to do a little shameless marketing for NJ Spotlight. Um, we are now, as I mentioned, eight years old, just celebrated our eighth birthday, yay for us. Um, and thank you. Um, and we are, as such, uh, what one does on birthdays is uh, fundraising campaigns. So, um, of course, we all know that, right? Um, so we're in the middle of our spring now slash summer uh, fundraising campaign. If you haven't gotten our emails, I'm surprised uh, because we're sending a lot of them. Um, we had planned to to sort of wind it down, but we decided with the budget still going, we're going to go as long as the budget. So. Um, <laughs> So we may be here in July asking you for money. Uh, hopefully not. Um, but it's um, you know it's really important for us and um, to have that support from our readers and and uh, we really appreciate it and, and our members and and there's lots of opportunities on the site if you haven't seen them in terms of donate buttons and and ads and and every which way to to become a member and become a supporter of Spotlight. It really makes a, a big difference. That said, uh, let's get going with the program. Um, we are starting off a little different for us. Is um, we're going to have an opening speaker um, who can really bring some some reality to this. Uh, it's Ashley Koenig, who's for the last two years has been the director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling right here in, at Rutgers University. Uh, better known to us as the Eagleton Poll, um, has a long history in New Jersey, and, and um, we're really thrilled to have her. And they did some polling recently uh, around this issue and and what are people's perceptions of the issue. Uh, but also the reality in their lives and, and how much um, they see not just the impact of the opioid crisis, but even in dealing with doctors and, and how much um, these uh, medications are, are being prescribed and how much they're being told about it. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Ashley Koenig. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me today and, and welcoming us. Thank you especially to NJ Spotlight. Um, I am literally your local friendly neighborhood pollster. I'm, I'm right down the road, uh, like literally walking distance. Uh, come over and say hi. Uh, but this is kind of fortuitous um, when I started talking to Spotlight that we actually went into the field two months ago uh, with some polling on the opioid epidemic within New Jersey. Um, let me see. Oh, there we go, great. Uh, so the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling is part of the Eagleton Institute of Politics, again, right down the road, the big white mansion. Uh, and the Eagleton Institute of Politics has been around for uh, decades now and, and is a, a foundation in the state and uh, Rutgers University in terms of promoting the, the practical side of politics. And we're one of a few of its centers we're the oldest uh, statewide university-based polling center in the country. Uh, and 
We've been around since 1971. I have not. Uh, but the polling center has been around since 1971. Thank you for my laugh in the corner, wherever that came from. Uh, so, uh, but we've been polling the state of New Jersey on everything from those really important topics like deer hunting and gambling and tattoos and the Jersey Shore to, you know, those things called elections and public policy and uh, taxes. But in all seriousness, especially um, these health crises that, that have arisen most recently, we've been doing polling for decades on things like medical marijuana, uh, recreational marijuana, and now getting into opioids. Um, and like I said, we're, we have a, a typical statewide poll that comes out a couple times a year with um, polling New Jersey and statewide about these kinds of issues. This particular poll was done with Itzhak Yanovitsky. He's a professor at the School of Communications and Information uh, right down the road. And this poll was done back at the end of April to May with about 700 New Jersey adults. Um, kind of your, your typical telephone survey, uh, a balance of cell phones and landlines to make sure we're really representing the New Jersey population. And we can generalize these results back to uh, the New Jersey population, which is important for so many issues, but particularly important here as we're trying to determine, um, you know, what the opioid epidemic looks like within the state, who's being touched by it, affected by it, what are attitudes and behaviors about the issue. So we just came out with a press release the other day that says uh, what's on this current slide, that nearly half of New Jerseyans say they or a family member have been affected uh, by uh, prescription pain medications, or rather they've been prescribed prescription pain medications within the past year by a doctor or by a dentist. Uh, and within those people, we do see that most of them have filled the prescription, and a large majority are taking them as directed. And then when we talk about New Jerseyans as a whole, uh, again, just over half say that they know someone who has actually misused or abused uh, prescription pain medication. Um, so again, we have just over half who say they or a family member have been prescribed, and then just over half saying they actually know someone personally who has abused or misused opioids. Um, the interesting thing here is this is widespread. There really aren't demographic differences to a large extent on these uh, particular facts right here. This is widespread across gender, race, ethnicity, income. People know somebody who's affected and people have been prescribed them. Prescriptions have mostly been due to uh, surgery and chronic pain among those who have been prescribed within the past year. Uh, so there's a quarter say that they, uh, they were prescribed for chronic pain and just about a third say they were prescribed for surgery. And again, this is somewhat widespread, not many demographic disparities here. You know, there, there's one thing uh, to look at the overall results, but it's also always good to kind of look under the hood at what, how different subgroups feel on the topic or, or how different subgroups are affected by the topic. And we actually don't see a whole lot of difference throughout many of these questions that we asked um, but, you know, yet we'll all get into a little bit later where some of these differences do pop out. And then a number of those prescribed, though, and, and this is perhaps something that was, was somewhat shocking, while most of them are saying who have been prescribed within the past year or have had a family member prescribed, uh, receive a prescription in the past year, most of them say that it has been explained to them why the prescription was necessary, but far fewer are saying that they were explained by their medical provider about alternative treatments 
and the dangers and risks that can come from taking the prescription pain medications or taking them uh, with things like antidepressants and alcohol. So again, while, while most people are saying they know why that prescription was necessary, a lot of these state-mandated items, uh, New Jerseyans are just not recalling that they remember hearing their medical provider say so. And actually, this is one of those areas where we do see some differences by subgroups. Uh, most notably, we see differences between uh, white residents and non-white residents here, with non-white residents actually recalling more so that they've had these conversations with their doctor or dentist or whoever prescribed the medication to them. So white residents, much less likely to, re uh, to recall, um, especially when it comes to the dangers, risks, and alternative treatments. Going back to New Jerseyans statewide, uh, New Jerseyans, I think this is no shock here, New Jerseyans see this as a very serious problem in the state. Um, and, and frankly, they see it as a problem statewide, much less so when it comes to seeing it as a problem within their own community. So well over 90% see it as a problem within New Jersey as a whole, and about seven in 10 see it as a problem within their particular community. But there are some important demographic differences that pop up here. So actually we see differences by age, by income, by parenthood, uh, among those who are shore residents, as well as those who know someone who has abused or misused opioids. In each one of these instances, these groups are actually even more likely to see the problem as a serious problem within their community. So those, those bottom demographics are actually about the in the community numbers where we see more variance and we see more disparity in who believes it's a serious problem versus those who do not. So of course those who are affected by it and those in demographics who uh, you know, are, are more likely perhaps to be affected by the opioid epidemic are more likely to perceive that it's actually a serious problem within the community. When it comes to actual awareness and knowledge uh, of everything going on with the opioid crisis, um, people are mostly paying attention within New Jersey. So 50% say they're paying a lot of attention to what's happening with the issue, 27% say they're paying some attention, and mostly people are following this through news stories and social media. 85% say that they uh, follow this frequently or occasionally through the news, and 54% say they do the same through social media. So anything in terms of local organizations, information provided by a city or town, or outdoor billboards or advertising, people are less likely to feel like they're picking up information through these means. And also, residents know more about the causes than the solutions and actions being taken when we ask them to tell us how much they feel that they know about a variety of different things about the opioid ep epidemic. They know how people are getting addicted. They very well know what is causing the opioid addiction, but they don't really know what their state and local governments are doing about it, and they don't really know as much so or as to as great of an extent. Uh, they don't know about how people can get help. So again, there's a, a slight knowledge gap here. They know what's going on, but they really don't know how to fix it and who is fixing it as much as they know what the problem is. And then again, uh, we asked about kind of information overload. Um, so Professor Janowitzki and I asked questions about how New Jerseyans feel about the, uh, the amount of information that they're consuming and the kind of information they're consuming on the opioid, opioid epidemic. 21% either strongly or somewhat agree that there's just too much information going on about opioid addiction right now. 
22% agree that the information available is just too complicated, but over half actually say that they either strongly or somewhat agree that the information out there seems repetitive. So almost like there's, there's a disconnect here where they're not finding out about state and local government and how to help, but what they do see in the media and what they do hear about uh, is repetitive to New Jerseyans. We also kind of did a little true or false test. Um, I'm a political scientist and a professor by trade, so you always have to put a quiz in there uh, to quiz New Jerseyans. And so actually we, we wanted to get an assessment of how New Jerseyans, uh, what New Jerseyans know about simple facts regarding prescription pain medications and the opioid epidemic. And the little yellow highlighted boxes are, are what the actual answer should have been. Uh, the bars are graphing what the answers, uh, how, the, how New Jerseyans answered and the fallout of those answers. So we can see that pretty much everyone knows that everyone who takes prescription pain medications uh, will become addicted to them. Most New Jerseyans know that is false. The biggest disparities here or is there is a false stigma of um, the lack of self-discipline. So about half of people got wrong the statement that people get addicted to prescription pain medicine because they lack self-discipline to use it as it should be used. And again, you know, just under half of New Jerseyans actually got that statement wrong and said that it was a true statement instead of a false one. And to a lesser extent, about a quarter of New Jerseyans got wrong that uh, addiction can only come with long-term use. Um, and, and also got wrong um, that opioid-related overdoses kill more people than gun violence and traffic accidents combined, which is actually a true statement, but again, we see a quarter of New Jerseyans actually believe that was false. Um, so there, there are some false stigmas here. In general, a majority of New Jerseyans are, are going in the right direction on these true-false statements, but again, it's, it's a start to an assessment of the knowledge of the general public within the Garden State and, and what they know versus what they don't know um, regarding the opioid epidemic. There have been a lot of national polls about um, blame, responsibility, solutions, and so we took some of those questions and put them within the New Jersey context, and much like, uh, much like citizens nationally, New Jerseyans, again, say those who are the most to blame are the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies. Um, this is especially apparent among certain subgroups, such as white residents, those who are middle-aged to older, those who are in the upper level income brackets, uh, particularly those who are in that range of 100 to $150,000 a year in households making that annually. So again, it's really the doctors and the pharmaceutical companies um, that receive combined half of the blame when we gave them different options of who they thought was the most to blame for what's going on. And similarly, this goes back to the knowledge and awareness that we addressed in previous slides. When we asked them what they thought the best solution was, um, actually it's a tie between educating the public more and limiting the prescription of opioids. So again, that first one, limiting prescriptions, really tying into who they blame in terms of doctors and pharmaceutical companies. And that second one, education, hearkening back to the information they're getting is seeming repetitive, actually somewhat notable numbers are saying that it's, it's complex and, and it's redundant. Um, and again, you know, there's, there's some misinformation among New Jerseyans about what's true and what's false regarding the opioid epidemic. 
We see very similar demographic breakdowns here in terms of the same sort of subgroups pop up once again in terms of who's even more, uh, who's even more likely to say that there should be a limit to prescriptions of opioids. So again, it's those same subgroups, middle-aged, higher-income white residents, who again are more likely to choose uh, limiting prescriptions of opioids as their top choice for a solution. And then this probably finally comes as no surprise uh, to anyone. Um, there's strong support for limitations and requirements here. So these are all things that we, we know well about, and we see almost 8 in 10 or more than 8 in 10 New Jerseyans uh, support limiting initial opioid prescriptions to a five-day supply for acute temporary pain. They support requiring physicians to prescribe strong painkillers for chronic pain only after talking about alternative treatments. Again, somewhat of a disconnect from where we saw that a large portion of the population of those prescribed uh, did not remember or recall having that conversation about alternative treatments. And finally, there is widespread large support, almost all New Jerseyans, uh, support requiring physicians to check patient histories before prescribing. Um, so no surprise here again, large support for a lot of these initiatives. So to kind of sum up, um, the problem is real, and there is a definite, there are about half of New Jerseyans say they've been prescribed, just over half say that they know someone personally who has gone through, uh, you know, issues and problems and misuse of prescriptions, um, and we see that there are some levels of awareness and knowledge that are higher than others, depending on what items and facets of the issue, but of course, large support for solutions and, and making it better, and especially those solutions stemming from limitations, requirements, restraints, and further education for the public. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, good morning. I'm Steve Shallot. I'm the Business Development Director with NJ Spotlight. I work with John Mooney and Lilo and, and Lee, and we are very pleased that you could be here to help us address this very important topic. And part of what makes this possible are our sponsors, whom we want to thank uh, specifically with a few words about each. And um, uh, firstly, uh, I'd like to thank St. Joseph's Health. Um, St. Joseph's Health is one of New Jersey's leading healthcare systems providing services ranging from geriatric emergency medicine to world-class pediatric care. St. Joseph's University Medical Center in Patterson has been perennially recognized by U.S. News and World Report as a best hospital in New York, metropolitan area. St. Joseph's operates the busiest emergency department in New Jersey with more than 160,000 patients annually, and it's the home of the nationally acclaimed ALTO program, um, otherwise known as alternate, Alternatives to Opioids, and uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that today. Also, I'd like to thank Hackensack Meridian Health, which is New Jersey's largest and most comprehensive health network with 16 hospitals, 450 patient care locations, and 6,500 physicians reaching two-thirds of the state's population. They launched this year the Hackensack Meridian Health Medicine at uh, School of Medicine at Seton Hall University to pursue a mission of redefining medical education and also to keep future physicians in the state. Hackensack Meridian Health partners with leading providers and institutions, including Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, to deliver exceptional patient care in New Jersey and to invest in innovations to improve healthcare delivery. Also, I'd like to thank the 
Employers Association of New Jersey, which is a nonprofit trade organization dedicated to improving employer-employee relations and to facilitate the exchange of information among employers in the state. They play a key role in helping companies master the complexities of labor standards and regulations. And the Employers Association of New Jersey also helps good employers become better employers by assisting with work health solutions and benefits such as multi-employer health programs, telemedicine, employee assistance, and wellness programs. Um, I'd like to thank also the New Jersey Innovation Institute. The New Jersey Innovation Institute is a subsidiary corporation of the New Jersey Institute of Technology and is the industry-facing arm of the university. Their innovation labs address industry challenges in biotechnology and pharmaceuticals, civil infrastructure, defense and homeland security, finance, and healthcare. The New Jersey Innovation Institution's Healthcare Delivery Lab, Delivery System iLab, partners with the New Jersey Department of Health, the New Jersey Department of Human Services, and its client providers in the fight against the opioid epidemic. And lastly, I'd like to thank the Medical Society of New Jersey. Founded in 1766, the Medical Society of New Jersey is the oldest professional society in the United States. The society's mission is to promote the betterment of the public health and the science and art of medicine. The Medical Society of New Jersey represents all medical disciplines, specialties, and practice settings, and serves as the leading advocate for patient and physician rights in New Jersey. Their members are dedicated to ensuring delivery of the highest quality medical care throughout the state. Thanks again to our sponsor for helping, making this, helping to make this possible. And I'd like to bring John Mooney on to uh, give you a few rules of the road for the event, and then we'll start our panel. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. And, and I, oh, I brought my camera with me. Sorry about that. Um, I do want to especially thank the sponsors. These events don't happen without uh, that underwriting support. and. and um, you know, we really appreciate it and, and uh, deserve a lot of credit. So one more round of applause for the folks who've made this possible. Indeed, uh, we're going to start the panel. So those who are panelists, you can start uh, working your way up here while I give some instructions to the crowd. Um, basically, um, as, uh, as folks know who've been here before, um, this uh, discussion will be moderated and, and led by our reporter, Lilo Staten. But we also encourage and, and uh, certainly welcome uh, the audience to, to ask questions and, and even uh, provide some commentary of their own. Uh, the way we do that is, is through index cards uh, that are on each of your tables. And, and if you have a question that you want to um, weave into the conversation, write that down on the index card and wave it. Uh, a bunch of our s staff will be wandering, including myself, around the outskirts. Wave it. We'll grab it from you. And we'll get it up to Lilo. Um, and hopefully, we can't guarantee every, everyone gets into the discussion, but hopefully as many as possible can do so. Um, we also, on the tables, have surveys, uh, which we ask you to fill out before you leave. That input is really important to us. This is a, a new venue for us, and, and curious your thoughts on that, but also the, the quality of the discussion, even the quality of the coffee. Um, you're, you're welcome to weigh in on that. I thought it was very good, I might add. Um, what's an event without a hashtag, of course? Um, the, uh, the one for this, and we, we went searching, uh, but it's opioids in NJ. So if, if uh, Twitter is your thing, um, that, that is uh, an opportunity for you to weigh in on that. 
And also, um, be aware uh, this event doesn't end here. Uh, obviously, the issue doesn't end here, but our coverage certainly doesn't end here. But we will also be um, posting a, we'll be writing an article off of this event. Lilo not only moderates, but she writes. And she'll be writing an article off of this event. Um, but we will also um, be posting a podcast uh, of both uh, Ashley's talk and of the panel discussion. And that will be on a page that will be devoted specifically to this event, which will also have the bios of each of the speakers and any kind of presentations that they have made. Ashley, can we can we ask? Will your your so anyone who is taking pictures? I always love people taking pictures of powerpoints. Um, that will be available uh, next week on the page, and there's lots of data in there that I think uh, obviously will be very useful to many of you. So um, let's get going. And I want to introduce Lilo Stanton, our, our health and healthcare writer. Uh, she's been with us how long now? Three years. Seems like yesterday, yeah. right? Yeah, um, three years, and, and wow. really a, a wonderful resource for this state, and um, does a heck of a job moderating as well. So I introduce Lilo Stanton. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm going to sit over here for now because we are temporarily, we're missing our fifth panelist, um, Senator Vitale, may be joining us. Um, he had a flood in his basement. It is not budget related, he promises, but it is actual water. Um, we have some great panelists. I'm going to introduce them quickly, um, then say a few words, and then um, we'll get right in. They're going to tell you a little bit about their work, and then we'll get into the interactive part. Um, I have a different order, but Dr. Rosenberg, I'm going to start with you, sorry. The Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine, uh, the Chief Innovation Officer, Chair of Emergency Medicine at St. Joseph's, uh, Joseph's Health, which is, includes St. Joseph Hospital, and the creator of the ALTO program, which we're going to be talking a lot about. Um, he's also on a number of national boards regarding uh, emergency medicine and pain management. Dr. Sharif El-Nahal, as many of you know, is the New Jersey Commissioner of Health. Um, he, we are lucky to have him. He served as a physician executive to the, the VA, uh, focusing on quality, safety, and value. He was appointed to that position as a presidential fellow by President Barack Obama in 2015, uh, and also an adjunct at uh, Georgetown U University, and a number of other things. Um, Kathy Ahern O'Brien um, is executive director of the Hyacinth Foundation, uh, for those that you don't know, Hyacinth has been around now for 33 years. Um, and I'm thinking back to a time when AIDS was just coming on the scene, and at least publicly. Um, Hyacinth helps people with AIDS live with the disease, AIDS and HIV positive live with the disease, uh, slows the spread of the disease and through community health programs, and does advocacy on uh, the community's behalf. Um, Last but not least, Dr. Roman Solka. Ramon Solka, sorry. Okay. Rhymes with polka, I was told. Uh, the founding, founding chair of psychology at Jersey Shore Medical Center um, and an addiction specialist who serves at a number of other hospitals along the Jersey Shore, um, which we know is in many ways ground zero for uh, the epidemic in New Jersey. And we will hopefully be joined at some point by Senator Joseph Vitale, who's chair of the health committee, um, created kid care. I like to say he's the father of kid care and family care. He also has an adorable baby girl. Uh, 
and uh, also created syringe access and a number of other programs, uh, including SBRIT, which we might talk a little bit about today. Um, so what brings us here? Um, we Spotlight looked at this as uh, a lot of people are doing <coughs> events around opioid addiction, um, but we were looking at this as sort of we're at a unique time in the state of New Jersey. Um, we are coming out of an administration that undoubtedly put tr tremendous amounts of public pressure, uh, public awareness and pressure and resources toward this issue, raised the visibility of addiction um, significantly in the state and in the nation. Um, and now we have a new administration that is taking this on in a very, very different way. Um, I would argue a more targeted and possibly more scientific approach to, to uh, addressing addiction. Um, and so we have, we're in a state where we have some of the nation's most restrictive uh, prescription limits already. We have a fairly robust PMP uh, database, which I, is linked to more than a dozen other states. Um, we have expanded school screenings and, and uh, mental health help and screenings. Um, expand as, as well as expanding treatment options and insurance coverage. And, and as probably as you all know, the focus of today is on prevention, so we'll talk more about treatment and recovery in the fall. Uh, prevention and risk reduction, so we want to start, start there. But we are at a time where uh, prescription numbers are dropping, um, and I think the commissioner is going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and treatment is more available, but the disease is still taking a tremendous toll. Um, more than 2,000 people died of addiction-related diseases in two, or overdoses in 2016. Um, more than 1,400 have died so far this year. Um, so we're on trend to, to surpass the totals probably of 2016 and 2017, which data isn't available yet. Um, that's partly due to changes in the sort of the pharmacology, fentanyl, um, which is a, a far more um, a far stronger opioid, um, but there are other issues as well. Um, we're getting more into treatment, but we still have significant, um, significant challenges. Um, so with that, um, and focusing on prevention and risk reduction, um, I wanted to start with you, um, Dr. Elnahal. Tell us a little bit about sort of what you view as, it, as the Department of Health sort of prevention, Portfolio. I should also note that just yesterday, yeah, yesterday, the, the governor announced that um, some of the programs that are related to addiction and mental health that were in Commissioner Elma Hall's department for a brief six, seven months are now going back to Commissioner Johnson's uh, Department of Human Services. If I'm correct, Depart uh, Department of Health will retain oversight of the hospitals, the state hospitals, and licensing of the psychiatry. Uh, certain medical licensing, but the community-based addiction and mental health programs will go back to Department of Human Services. So it doesn't mean you don't know about these things, but this is all a little bit in flux. So when we're talking about prevention, um, prevention goals, and so what do, what do you include in that portfolio in, in the Department of Health? And if I might, how much does sort of population health come into that? Yes, sorry. Thank you. We have to do a little past the mic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the question, Lilo. And I, I first want to thank um, New Jersey Spotlight for inviting me today, uh, and in particular for holding events like this. Uh, the 
a cr one critical tool for actually making an impact in this epidemic and beginning to see the tide turn is, of course, uh, raising awareness about the issue and doing so in a way that really highlights what can work and, importantly, what stakeholders like the folks here in the audience can do to be part of that. Uh, so it's, I think, really laudable that we're even here today, and, and that's due to New Jersey Spotlight. I also want to thank uh, the Department of Health staff that's here with me, Deputy Commissioner Deborah Hartels back there, um, and I have others here as well supporting us. So um, I want to just first start by saying I think about this problem every single day. Um, it is the top uh, public health priority, uh, certainly of Governor Murphy uh, and also of myself. Um, and that is why in the proposed budget uh, that we have, fingers crossed, um, we have proposed allocating $100 million to the broad scope of what the state's effort are going to be about this issue. Uh, that money will be targeted towards solutions, not any particular department, where departments will be most effective in carrying out those solutions. Uh, they will be involved. And so that is going to be programmatic and focused again uh, on where we think the intervention will help the most. Uh, and the details on that, again, hoping that uh, we get the proposed funding uh, will be forthcoming. I do want to mention that some progress has been made on this issue, but the simple uh, upshot is that not enough progress has been made. Um, you saw an 18% opioid prescription reduction between 2015 and 2017. Uh, a large part of that uh, was around public awareness and the investment in public awareness, uh, which I believe most of the funding uh, and resources and attention uh, was dedicated in the last administration. Um, what we're trying to do with the newer approach uh, is actually do a comprehensive public health approach, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. The problem is, even though we're seeing these earlier leading indicators improve, uh, we are not seeing the ultimate metric, the one that we care about the most, opioid overdose deaths improve. Uh, as Lilo mentioned, tw over 2,200 people died in 2016, definitive data. That's the most recent year where we have definitive data. Uh, and we are on track, as she mentioned, to exceed 3,000 opioid overdose deaths in calendar year 18. Uh, so what we have done thus far is simply not enough. And it's not the amount of resources in my mind as much as how the resources were expended and used, being smarter with how we approach this. And that is what the governor has asked us to do, a comprehensive public health approach that's evidence-based. I describe that in uh, an analogy that I think helps people see how we're going to approach this. First of all, targeting the geographic areas of the state that are hit the hardest. Uh, and we have pretty definitive data on where the problem is uh, the worst. Uh, the counties, I think we have some data up here on the screen, uh, where we are going to be spending a lot of our time and resources uh, are dependent on that. And that's because when you're in a crisis, you have to focus on the most urgent areas and the, and the most urgent uh, problems first. So that's one key element of a comprehensive public health approach. The second is thinking very closely about what it means to be on the journey uh, from initial exposure to opioids toward addiction, toward overdose and death. Imagine a hallway, a figurative hallway, where somebody going through this journey is walking. 
That hallway is lined with doors or gates that represent a bad outcome. That initial exposure to opioids could be a very bad outcome. Uh, the point at which someone becomes addicted is another door, a bad outcome. A point at which someone becomes incarcerated is another door. And a point at which, of course, somebody overdoses and dies are two more doors. We want the fewest number of people possible going through each of those doors. And the methods by which we prevent that are different for each of those doors. So in other words, it's not just that final metric that we have to pay attention to. It's the metrics that represent the event where somebody passes through that adverse outcome, that door that represents where we want, don't want people to go through. And so that's why simply raising awareness by itself will not work. Um, what we're doing for the prevention and harm reduction piece, I'll go through that um, in a few minutes. The uh, th methods like the ALTO program, we have Dr. Rosenberg uh, to my right, uh, saw an over 50% decrease in initial opioid prescriptions for acute pain in their emergency rooms and in their sites of care. There are ways to do this from a protocol perspective, from clinical practice, that allow you to treat people's pain without resorting automatically to opioids. And what we're trying to do is take that work and scale it as much as possible across the state, and we will be working hand in hand with St. Joseph's and Dr. Rosenberg to do that. Lilo mentioned the uh, PDMP, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program that we have. We have one. Uh, it is not linked seamlessly yet to uh, availability to physicians at the site of care. So what we're trying to do is integrate that into electronic health records, uh, into in particular emergency room settings. So again, that initial opioid prescription is not done, if at all possible, when you're seeing how many opioid prescriptions somebody may have had before they walked in. Unfortunately, opioid shopping occurs, and it occurs in emergency site of, sites of care. Uh, the other piece of this is social supports and housing and employment. Uh, a big part of the prevention effort is, of course, providing a social, so, socially stable uh, network of support for people so that if they are addicted and they are uh, in recovery, that they don't relapse. And of course, improving the economies and the social environment around people will, will hopefully reduce the number of folks who succumb to this problem. Uh, medicinal marijuana is a big part of the prevention agenda. Uh, we saw, we've seen through evidence that states that have adopted medicinal marijuana programs uh, saw a 6% reduction at least in the number of opioid prescriptions and an almost 25% reduction in the rate of increase. So it's not a reduction overall. It's reducing the steepness of the slope where, by which it's increasing. Uh, but a 25% reduction in that slope for states that have adopted medicinal marijuana programs because people are using medicinal marijuana, which has been proven to be effective for pain through research uh, as a treatment for chronic pain. And then finally, you have things like syringe access programs. Uh, we have Hyacinth represented here today, uh, which presents an example of that, providing a uh, great way for folks who are using uh, needle drugs to uh, be brought into treatment. And of course, uh, you prevent things like hep C and HIV from spreading. Just a few things that we're doing in the prevention and harm reduction, and of course, this circles back to the budget. Uh, we have money for prevention, we have money for social supports, and we have money to build the critical data infrastructure to make sure that we are tracking this problem in a more real-time way.
Thank you. Um, Dr. Rosenberg, let's go to you. Tell us a little bit just sort of about Alto and, and kind of what brings you to the table. First of all, um, it's always important to thank everybody for having me here today. So I want to thank New Jersey Spotlight, and I also want to thank the commissioner who gave a shout out to Alto, which has been uh, something that I'm very, very passionate about and how to uh, improve um, or prevent addiction and dependency for those um, uh, who live in New Jersey and really throughout the country. Um, specifically, you want to know more about Alto, I take it. So um, in the previous speaker, it was said that too often the rhetoric about opioids is too complicated. So let me explain Alto in a very, very simple, uncomplicated way, which is really the heart and soul of what Alto is. If I don't give you an opioid, you can't get addicted or dependent to it. And that is the heart and soul of Alto. If I can treat your pain aggressively and manage your symptoms and keep you functional with using safe alternatives to opioids, we will have a successful program. That's the goal. Thank you. Let me uh, now make it more complicated. Uh, Alto is a multimodal, multidisciplinary, advanced acute pain management system. Um, and it, the way that it works is very simply by using advanced strategies to address the pain receptors and the enzymes that mediate pain. An opioid really covers up the pain, makes it so you're not really feeling it. And in many ways, that works great for somebody who's in a car accident and their pelvis is crushed by a car. But for somebody who has an ankle injury or something like that, there are ways of managing their pain by addressing the receptors. When we started the program, it was based on really five common conditions that present to the emergency department and has expanded tremendously since then. And when we look at any, uh, the commissioner said this, but I want to repeat it because it's so important. What I'm talking about now is the prevention, but there's at least three parts to this solution going forward. There may be six, there may be five, but prevention is part of it, treatment is part of it, and harm reduction. And we're going to talk about two of those legs to the stool today. At St. Joe's, one of the best parts about starting Alto is there was immediate buy-in from all the emergency physicians. I didn't have to pass regulation, policy. I gave them more tools to put in their toolbox so that they were able to manage acute pain without resorting to opioids. When pain was made the fifth vital sign. What happened is emergency physicians would look in the toolbox and they had Tylenol, they had Motrin, and they had Percocet. And if I only had one chance to eliminate your pain, the easiest thing to go to was Percocet. And we were told that it was non-addicting for acute pain and we should use it and not restrict people from taking Percocet. Um, at the same time, we, so I got buy-in from all my physicians, and let me just give you the results. The commissioner also mentioned this, but in the first year, we had a 57% reduction in opioids, opioid prescriptions through the emergency department. 
At the end of the second year, we had an 82% reduction in opioids. But here's the most fascinating statistic, is that nationally, 17% of people who go to the emergency department receive a prescription for opioids. At St. Joe's, it's less than 2% right now. That is an amazing difference. People are leaving with good management of their pain, better patient satisfaction, and we're seeing an increase in certain populations. One is the pediatric population, because if any of you have children, you don't want to expose them to an opioid, and St. Joe's will not unless it's absolutely necessary. Number two, we're seeing more seniors, more geriatric patients, particularly those of very much advanced age. Let me give you an example why. Somebody who comes into St. Joe's with a fractured hip, instead of getting morphine for the pain, will get a little bit of nitrous oxide, get a nerve block to eliminate all the pain, remove the nitrous oxide, and then that patient is, is in their bed without any pain, without any opioids, without any risk of addiction, and without all the side effects that happen with opioids. They will also leave the hospital without the need for opioids because of the aggressive surgery and everything that's done very, very quickly, and as a result, don't have the increased falls risk and uh, constipation and everything else uh, that is necessary uh, that happens from opioids. There was so much excitement about this that our OBGYN department, obstetrics and gynecology, uh, wanted to jump on the bandwagon and develop their own Alto protocols. Dr. Kearse runs that program, and he is excited to tell everybody, so I'm going to tell you today, for two different common uh, procedures that he typically would use opioids, and that is cesarean sections and hysterectomies. He now has a 50% reduction of opioid use in those cases and has better patient satisfaction than before. It is my feeling that as we expand this philosophy and this culture, that many of the specialties of the House of Medicine will jump on board gladly, develop their own Alto pro protocols for each of the specialties, and really decrease the reliance on opioids. And what I wanted to say also is from the very beginning, it's impossible to be opioid free because opioids are tremendously powerful and excellent medications for pain, but they need to be used with respect and diligence. They just can't be used like we thought a few decades ago uh, uh, for everybody with pain because it was safe. It's not safe. It's very, very dangerous, very addictive, very uh, creates a lot of dependency. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, <laughs> down here for Kathy. Thank you. Um, I want to go to Kathy next, but it's it's interesting to hear how you know doctors are leading. In, in reversing a trend that doctors have now been given a lot of blame for creating, you know, even though you didn't create the entire problem, but yeah. May I? May I yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a very good point, but I, I, I want to really mention how we got here, just very quickly. Yeah, I'm not sure, going to take up sure. too much time. There's many steps to how we got here, but there is a perfect storm that yeah. happened a few decades ago, and it, uh, uh, just a decade ago, but there was an article that came out in the Journal of Pain that said opioids are safe to use and should be used without restriction for those who present to with acute pain. 
At the same time, um, the VA and the Joint Commission jumped on board and said, pain's the fifth vital sign. We need to treat everybody who comes in with pain. At the same time, the drug companies were coming out with new and improved and more addictive opioids that were on the market, OxyContin and others, and um, because they were non-addictive and we should give them to everybody. And then the worst part that we don't frequently talk about is the Mexican cartel started flooding every major city in the United States with black tar heroin. As a result, those people who were started on opioids who couldn't con continue because their supply was cut off for whatever reason, now had easy access to one of the most deadly opioids on the, out there, uh, at least at that time, and that was black tar heroin. Now we have more with this in synthetics. And, and, and there's a terrific book about that, yeah, that um, I can't remember the name of it, but Dream, it, Dreamland. Dreamland, yes. Highly recommended reading. It talks entirely about how the cartels and how it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, sorry. So, no, and I just wanted to add one other piece Dr. to that, um, because I think the other thing that affected New Jersey particularly is literally the perfect storm, which was Superstorm Sandy. Mm, and so that I, I think that, you know, part of what we've seen, particularly in the shore areas, was communities that were devastated by yeah. the Superstorm that then ended up having people's support networks disrupted, people ended up in physical pain, certainly a lot of emotional pain, and I think that also in New Jersey has particularly contributed to the, really? the factors that Mark has listed. Point. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, Kathy, tell us a little bit about what Hyacinth does, you know, what brings you here, and, um, and what you're seeing. Since you work in a lot of these communities, what, what sort of is, what's the picture today? So thank you to New Jersey Spotlight for um, asking me to join this, this panel as well. You know, I think the, the issue around harm reduction, harm reduction is really where policies, practices, and procedures meet, right? So that we can meet the client where the client is at and provide them the services that they need so that they can stay healthy. It's a, it is a true public health measure, measure. It took us 15 years in the state of New Jersey to get syringe access passed. And I really am sorry that Senator Vitale is not here because he's the guy, yeah. right? He's the guy who got it done, along with my predecessor at Hyacinth, Vicki Jacobs, and, and our policy person, Axel Torres Marrero, who is here with us today. But again, it took, it took 15 years. And the way that the law was written, it's up to the cities to decide whether or not they want to allow a syringe access program to operate in their city. And I think the statistic presented earlier before about I think 90% of, of New Jerseyans believe that opioid use is an issue, and yet 71% believe that it's not in their community. Mm -hmm. And so when you're trying to get a city council to pass an, uh, a syringe access pr um, program, it takes a lot of work because a lot of people don't believe it's happening in their backyard. And so the work that Hyacinth does is on, on the implementation side. We run three syringe access programs. Jersey City, which has been in operation since 2009. Trenton we, is a new program, which we started in December of 2017. And we took over the Patterson program. Patterson was one of the first programs. We took over management of that program this past January. And I think what we're saying is that people come from histories of trauma. And I think that what Ramon said earlier is, is such a clear indicator where something happens in somebody's life and they don't have the social support, um, they may not have housing, they may not have um, you know, the family systems that, that most of us in this room, quite frankly, have. 
and addiction kicks in. And once that addiction kicks in, you're then you're looking for the fix. And what we do at, at Hyacinth is, you know, we work with the clients to say, how can I help you today? Come on in, have a cup of coffee. Let's talk about how to help you stay healthy while you're using. The ultimate goal is to move them into treatment, and I think that we do that pretty successfully. But you have to do it when the client's ready. So there are folks who think, you know, somebody's going to come into a syringe access program today and move into treatment in a week, and simply it, it's just not going to happen that, year, that, that way. We had a client, for instance, who came to Jersey City for two years. And for two years, staff would say, would you like a cup of coffee? How many needles do you, do you think you need to get you through into your next visit? Can we talk about getting you? Do you, need, do you need to see a doctor? Do you need some food? Do you need, what do you need to stay safe? And so this went on for two years. And then the client walked in one, one Monday morning and staff said, would you like a cup of coffee? And she said, no, I need treatment. She said, I OD'd this weekend and almost died. And I, and I get it. I need treatment and I need to get into treatment today. And I think that's the other piece is that when you have somebody who's ready to move into treatment, you have to have treatment available because you're going to lose them. You're going to lose them. And I think, you know, when we talk about back to the 71% who don't think it's in their communities, you know, one of the challenges that the syringe access programs are facing is that you know, NIMBY is alive and well, and, it, and alive and well in our urban centers too. And as our cities are gentrifying, right? We all know that they're getting expensive. They're, they, you know, nobody wants a drug treatment center. Nobody wants a syringe access program down the street from them. Atlantic City's had some issues. Um, Jersey City, we looked for space for two years. Mm. For two years. We couldn't find space that we could afford, and we couldn't find space that would be appropriate for a syringe access program. And, and when I talk about the appropriateness of where a syringe access program should be placed, in a commercial bidding, where there are other corporate partners, they don't want us, right? On churches, we can partner with some churches, but if they have a daycare, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be near a school. Have you ever tried to open a syringe access in a city and not be near a school or a daycare <laughs> center, it is next to impossible. So all of these challenges come together, and yet, you know, at this point, the State Department of Health has always been extremely supportive of the syringe access program, and, and we're totally grateful to, to the commissioner and his staff for working with us. We finally have seven programs that are up and running in the state, all in urban centers, and even in those urban centers, we hear, well, it's not our residents who are coming here, it's people from other, other, other locations why do I have to let these other people come into my city? They're not helping us. And so, it, you know, it, it's a continual struggle for us. Yeah. It's, uh, Dr. Rosenberg and I were talking about, um, we're talking about the, po the possibility of safe injection sites. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but, you know, if you, if you think you have trouble, right, citing with that, yeah. Dr. Alnahal, please. I just wanted to um, sell even further what the value of these programs are. Uh, part of my job involves talking to people in my position in other states. Um, you have Kentucky uh, with a pretty conservative government, uh, but the governor has there has recognized what the value of these programs can be. Uh, we have seven with one currently on pause right now, so really six. Uh, they have 35. Uh, and that government is, uh, like I said, one that has not necessarily taken progressive public health approaches on other matters. But they've seen 
what the value is of not only having someone come in getting safe needles, which of course prevents the spread of disease, uh, but also presents that opportunity to capture them into treatment and also for things like hepatitis C screening, uh, screening for AIDS and getting them into treatment for that. So you're having an opportunity for addressing the holistic health needs of folks who come in. Uh, and when you have more of these programs throughout the state, you don't have this phenomenon where people in the municipalities are arguing, oh, we're gonna be a magnet for everyone else in the surrounding area because there's more of these things available uh, to folks closer to where they are. So this is something that we're really looking to expand and invest in because we know the potential, we know what it can do for people. Dr. Rosenberg, something to add? I, I just wanted to ask a question of everybody and it's a little bit rhetorical and I how many people here know how to shoot up drugs correctly <laughs> right and, and how would you learn and nobody raised their hand and, right um, I don't uh, uh, and how would you learn and how does the person on the street know yeah. how to uh, sterilize their needle a lot believe that your saliva will do that so oh, they'll yeah. lick the needle first but in the emergency departments across the state, my colleagues and myself are seeing many people with complications of shooting drugs. Uh, many of them with an abscess on their arm from shooting there. Uh, many of them who come in paralyzed because they have an abscess on their spinal cord. Or worse yet, those who come in in heart failure because the bacteria that they injected is now eating away the valves of their heart. Uh, this is a major problem, and on top of that we have the hepatitis C and we have uh, HIV and all these complications that we can prevent with looking at that three-legged stool, the prevention, the treatment, and the harm reduction, and we can really mitigate a lot of these, these problems that we're seeing. I want to say too, so it, you raise a very good point. The syringe access programs actually do that work. We teach addicts how to shoot up safely, and I laughed because my colleague did raise his hand that he knows how to had it had it appropriately shoot. I wish we could say we're doing a demonstration later, but <laughs> we're not. <laughs> okay, just right. But the state has also funded the Arch Nurse Program, which is um, a, it, it. It's targeted to women of childbearing age and their sex partners, which enables us to provide services to just about everybody who walks into the into the syringe site. And what we do is wound care. We we teach how to how to shoot. We provide clean works. You know, we do everything we can to teach somebody who's going to be shooting drugs how to do it in a safe manner. Because the goal again is harm reduction, and it is public health. It is about not spreading HIV, hepatitis C. So if we could, even if you could take that component and get it into other areas, I think that would be you know a huge issue. It's closing those doors. Dr. Sokol, I wanted to back up a little. Tell us a little bit about addiction and sort of how, I mean, we talked about trauma, and I, the, I mean, the, the, the Hurricane Sandy piece is fascinating, but what are some of the other sort of underlying conditions or, or factors, if you will? Um, so uh, thank you. So, um, you know, I, I'm a child psychiatrist and I'm an addiction psychiatrist, so I certainly end up dealing with this uh, problem on, on both ends of the spectrum. 
Um, you know, and I think that the, the key piece for me is that addiction is a brain disease. Um, and so you heard that alluded to in some of the statistics earlier about the stigma piece, which we don't have when we talk about insulin. I mean, imagine someone being diagnosed with diabetes and not instructing them on how to properly take their medication and how to approach things in a safe way there. So I think that is certainly one piece of it. Um, you know, you and I were chatting a, a little bit about the difference between dependence and addiction. Yes. So I think that that's certainly something that's really important to talk about because the dependence is a function of the medication. Um, or the drugs, so that it, it really is inherent in the properties, the pharmacologic properties of, of that. So whether we're talking about psychostimulants, benzodiazepines, or opioids, that is part of, of uh, dealing with the, the prescribing and the safe prescribing of those medications. Where it becomes addiction is where the behavioral component um, kicks in and where the, the brain gets hijacked, those um, pathways that help drive reward and um, you know, sort of the, the pleasure principle and all of those sorts of things, um, that really becomes then, then the drive. And we tend to think of, of people who are um, suffering with addiction or, or with a substance use disorder as being recreational users, and for them it is clearly not the case. They are using to feel normal and to be able to function in the world, and so that addiction has really taken over their brain and, and has focused on that. And is it fair to say that's the, those? I mean, that's why you have these sort of heartbreaking situations where you know people are nodding out in their car with their mm -hmm. child in the back. Absolutely. I mean, it's not that they wanted to put their child in danger, right? I mean, right. No, and 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 stop and think about then how powerful that drive must yeah, be. Exactly. That, that the maternal instinct, the paternal instinct is totally hijacked by the, the need to um, plan for drug use. And you know, you, you stop and think about what, what someone who's addicted has to go through in terms of their day and you know, yeah. planning that the night before you have to plan to wake up in the morning after only sleeping a few hours to wake up in, in, in withdrawal and so to have the substance there and have to plan for that then be intoxicated for a while, so not able to function. Then there's that very narrow window, maybe an hour, hour and a half, where you're able to function, do the things you need to do, get the kids off to school or go to work or whatever else, and then that cycle starts again. So every four, five, six hours, you're going through that for the day. That is not a, a, a pleasurable life, and, and you know I think it's been alluded to, obviously, the focus on treatment is really crucial to get people stabilized in their psychosocial supports. Um, you know, the, Going back to the, the issues around trauma, clearly such a huge piece of, of the patients that I work with is related to trauma and traumatic events in their lives, is related to underlying mental health issues that have been there and perhaps either untreated or poorly treated. So in younger kids, whether that's things like ADHD or depression, um, and then you know the more severe mental health issues like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So it really encompasses the whole gamut of, of sort of brain issues. Dr. Rosenberg, tell us when the addiction versus dependence dichotomy, if you will, how, how does that play out in the ER? Well, uh, you know, there's um, the emergency department seems to be a easy access 24-7, 365 for somebody to come in and get a legal prescription for opioids or to get an injection uh, complaining that they have a severe pain uh, or um, one issue or another, and they and we have opioids in the emergency department, so obviously that's the first place that people look. Um, and uh, I'll have patients who come in saying they have bad back pain, and I can look into the, um, the, the prescription drug database and see that they've been at six other hospitals. And, but 
many of these people have an addiction and they don't want to go into withdrawal. They feel the symptoms coming on and they say, let me try going to the emergency department. Here's the problem. If I don't offer them treatment and if I don't keep them out of withdrawal, then they're going to do something else to, to help themselves. Mm -hmm. Withdrawal is terrible and their life is staying out of withdrawal. So if I, if I don't give it to them, if I don't give them the drug, they're going to go on the street, they may get some heroin, fentanyl, or whatever it's going to take to make them feel better. So let me dovetail onto something we're not talking about today, but just to bring it up. If the emergency departments were able to get somebody out of withdrawal safely with pharmaceutical drugs that are designed for like this, like Suboxone and Bup mm -hmm. and different drugs like that, and get them out of withdrawal, they now no longer have to go out and get the drug to make themselves feel normal. And what that does is gives me an opportunity to get them into recovery, uh, or at least hopefully get them into recovery, and maybe they can stay in long-term recovery or get them into detox so they can get into long-term recovery. I know I didn't answer your question only, but I decided to just keep That's going. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so um, we have an interesting question here about um, how, from the audience, and I'll, I'll sort of throw this out to anybody who on the, on the panel who wants to an ask, answer this, but um, how do we increase addiction education in medical schools, um, given the fact, in part, that um, the, the, the poll data showed that people aren't hearing from their doctors. And I know there have been several legislative efforts to, to sort of mandate what doctors, how they have to discuss opioid addiction risk with their patients. I know there's usually a pushback when, when the legislature tells doctors you have to do X, not Y. But um, I'm curious sort of what do you do, how do we back it up and start in medical school, do better with that? So um, I'll, t I'll take a stab at that. Um, I, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, our approach at, at Hackensack Meridian Health has been to focus on three aspects of medical education. So one, we talk about the undergraduate medical education. So we're starting a new medical school, the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine at Seton Hall. Um, we're uh, about two weeks away from taking our inaugural class of 60 students, um, half of whom are from New Jersey, um, here to, to start. And so our curriculum um, has been uh, revamped and you know it's, it's sort of a, a new approach to integrating curriculum so that instead of the old days where you study physiology separate from biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Now it's about taking care of the whole patient so that for neurosciences and, and behavioral health, that's integrated right from the beginning so that uh, prescribing um, safely will be part of that curriculum. Mm -hmm. We then talk about graduate medical education, so focus on uh, those who've graduated medical school in our residency training. Um, so we've uh, been fortunate enough to start two new psychiatry training programs to help increase the number of psychiatrists that are available um, and a focus on uh, expanding fellowships in child psychiatry and addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry. So I think that'll be the second wave. Um, and then third of all is what we call continuing medical education. So focus on those physicians who are already practicing to make sure that they are kept up to date in terms of what is the um, latest guidelines and recommendations, as well as where the cutting edge research is going to um, help change uh, clinical practice. And, and part of what we're focusing on is really transforming care and stopping doing it the way that we've always done it and look at it in new ways. Um, 
one component of that that hasn't been in touched upon is really an approach towards um, population health and, mm -hmm. and managing the health and wellness of communities, not just when they get sick, but keeping people well. Um, and I think part of that also needs to be tied to the insurance aid uh, companies, which hasn't really been touched on here yet, um, because it's all fine and good for Mark and myself to sit there in an emergency room and make recommendations and prescribe um, alternatives. But if the insurance companies won't pay for it, then um, you know we're left with what else we've always done. And so I think you know things like physical therapy and occupational therapy are expensive and time-consuming, but definitely effective. But we need to make sure that that's um, got parity in terms of paying. Likewise, the non-opioid pain treatments to make sure that they're going to be covered and that there's not huge co-pays and huge out-of-pocket expenses for our patients. Just to add to that, I think um, the biggest part, I know this is on prevention uh, and harm reduction, but the biggest part of the treatment agenda, and Commissioner Johnson and I very much agree on this, is having more providers available to provide what Dr. Rosenberg was referring to, medication-assisted treatment. Uh, that is the protocol of drugs uh, that the treatment options that have been proven through research to get people out of addiction um, and into uh, at least extending the length of time between when folks are out and when they relapse. Uh, that is the number one agenda that we have. And New Jersey is actually leading in that effort now. Uh, on this campus, the medical school here at Rutgers is gonna be the first in the nation to offer medication-assisted treatment certification to medical students, not even people in residency uh, yet. And we wanna see how well that works. We wanna see other medical schools adopting a program similar to that throughout the state. And I think it's an absolutely essential part uh, of the agenda we have. And then of course, for those folks who didn't get it in medical school, to offer it in residency. Uh, because the more people, again, who are trained to do that, the more centers that we have, uh, the more uh, folks will have access to it. Medication-assisted treatment. There are three uh, types. The first is methadone, that's the oldest type. Uh, methadone uh, is essentially another type of opioid derivative that people get to keep them out of withdrawal, uh, but uh, to ultimately wean them down uh, off of it completely. That's the only option, by the way, that's safe for pregnant women. And we wanna get more pregnant women into medication-assisted treatment as well, and we're very focused on that. The second is Suboxone. Um, uh, and that's, that one is a unique type of drug where you really need training because it has a ceiling effect and there are particular uh, protocols that you have to follow. And the third is something called Vivitrol or Naltrexone. Uh, and that is actually an injection. Um, there's also another form that you can take, uh, but it lasts for about a month and it actually um, it requires you to be detoxed before. Uh, you take it. So uh, three types for different types of patients, depending on their profile. Uh, and we want folks to be trained in all three. And I, of course, this is treatment. And we're going to come back to this heavily in the fall. But I, I just I was so struck by something somebody said, one of the presenters said, uh, da, uh, the Department of Health hosted an opioid uh, related event, but it was it was their public health um, population, population health population health conference. Um, Dr. Rosenberg spoke at that as well. And uh, one of the speakers said, you know, nobody, so there's a, there's a lot of uh, controversy, I guess, around MAT and some, some, 
Some treatment providers insist that it is um, it's still using a drug, so you're just trading one drug for another. Um, but it was so fascinating. The speakers in the morning said, no one would ever say to a diabetic, when are you going to get off that insulin? You know, when are you going to cut back or when are you going to give up the insulin? And I thought that was really, really powerful point. Um, I just, I'd, I'd yeah. love, I'm glad that you brought that up and I'd love to piggyback on it because it, it doesn't just stop there, right. right? The whole treatment paradigm for addiction and substance use disorders is just not in line with what we know the brain science to, to hold. And so again, we, you know, you can talk about rehab, right, and detox. Again. No other medical condition does your doctor say, oh, you're diagnosed with hypertension. You know what you need is a 30-day rehab to get um, off of your diet, and we're going to you know, treat you uh, with that, and then that's it. You're cured from your hypertension. Right. And it's just it's a fallacy, right. and right. I think that you know, we really need to look at it as an ongoing approach. There's different levels of care depending on the illness. There are times when lifestyle approaches may be appropriate. There are other times where medication, and during the course of your life, you may end up going up and down depending on what's going on in your life. And I think that you know the, the focus on medication-assisted treatment is absolutely crucial and the cornerstone to getting that uh, stability to be able to then do all those other things in treatment that you need to do. So we've, we've got a couple uh, questions. We got a lot of very great questions. Thank you. Um, but when I just saw one that's, that I sort of think fits into this. Um, question about marijuana. I know we have some different opinions on this panel about how it can be used. But the, the questioner asked, <laughs> the questioner asked, why would we want to expand the use of medical marijuana, which is another addictive drug? Um, so first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first turn to Dr. Elnahal, um, who I know is, is an advocate for expanding the program. Um, tell us what you're seeing data-wise and, and how you see marijuana fitting into opioid use. Because I think it's interesting. It could fit in in a prevention. You know, maybe it's a pain relief issue, or maybe it's a, it's a, with, it, it's a to cure, to ease withdrawal. I mean. Tell us how you see it fitting in, and, and is it addictive or not, in your view? Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, just up front, uh, the governor has asked He has me, never smoked pot. That was what we went, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Joke. Yeah, exactly. Um, the governor has asked me and the Department of Health to focus on medicinal marijuana. So that is the frame by which I'm going to, to put this answer forward. Um, Marijuana, medical marijuana has been proven in research to be an effective treatment for chronic pain. Chronic pain from mus musculoskeletal origin, chronic pain from visceral origin, it works. A few other facts about medicinal marijuana. The side effect profile, when you compare them between marijuana and opioids, is without comparison. Uh, no one has ever died from a marijuana overdose. That's fact one. Fact two is that while medicinal marijuana, like many other things that cause, uh, you know, pleasure, uh, it has effects on the part of your brain called the dopamine reward pathway that, of course, want people to seek it more. However, it is not physically addictive. You do not go through physical withdrawal as you do with opioids, which can be deadly, by the way. Um, and you do not, of course, succumb to all of the medical effects that happen with withdrawal if you are on medicinal marijuana. So the uh, health risks, the risk profile, the side effect profile between medicinal marijuana and opioids uh, is far and away much more severe 
for opioids. I think most medical professionals at least will agree on that premise. Uh, again, we want folks to be under the care of a physician uh, who has recommended this therapy as they would any other therapy, uh, knowing what the risks and benefits are for a patient that walks into the door with a condition. For the conditions that we've approved it for, pain included, we're not necessarily saying that medicinal marijuana is first line for anyone that comes in. That is, again, a clinical decision that we want providers to make with patients. Uh, however, we want to offer that option because it was, it's been so beneficial for particular patients. I always refer to this story because I believe uh, it really highlights what I mean by this all being about the patients. Uh, I've had discussions with a child's father. The child is now uh, deceased, uh, named Jay Koenig. Uh, his father has told me that in the last days of his life, he had a disease called Ewing sarcoma, uh, which spread to all parts of his body, including his brain, uh, that medicinal marijuana was the only therapy, the only palliative therapy that allowed him to be able to sit with his family and share the last moments of his life. Morphine did not work. Other therapies did not work. Medicinal marijuana was the only thing that worked for this child. And those last moments, those last months, uh, the fact that medicinal marijuana was the option for them is why we are doing this. Uh, and that's sort of my spiel on this whole thing. Thank you. So as a counterpoint. Um, He's been itching and, 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 and with all, Absolutely, because I think with all due respect, I think one, um, I think we shouldn't use the word medical or medicinal with marijuana. It's legalized marijuana. Um, no uh, national medical organization, the American Medical Association, American Academy of Family Physicians, Pediatricians, so on and so forth, none of them endorse marijuana as a treatment at this point. Um, and I think that physicians can't actually use marijuana, as uh, the commissioner uh, said, unfortunately. Um, we can only make recommendations because it is still illegal at the federal level um, so that um, we actually are not treating it in the same way that we do. Um, and I think that the lessons that we learned from the opioids should make us very hesitant to open up floodgates on a new um, addictive substance without making sure that physicians are well-educated. Um, I, I don't share the um, robustness of the scientific evidence for um, these disorders, and there's a long list of disorders that people try and advocate. I think that the, the, the data around um, neuropathic pain and some of the neurologic disorders probably the strongest, um, and I think where we should be focusing our, as, our uh, efforts as physicians and scientists is around um, moving marijuana to Schedule 2. Right now, it's federally regulated to Schedule 1, which means no um, scientific um, purpose. Um, so I think we need to move it to Schedule 2 so we can actually do the scientific mm -hmm. studies to establish that validity. Um, you know, I think in the opioid crisis, which is absolutely crisis, and, and I agree with the commissioner, no one dies from a uh, marijuana overdose, but at least 10 to 15 percent of people become addicted to marijuana, um, particularly the kids who I see, uh, younger kids, those with mental health issues become more vulnerable, and, and you know, the um, downside of those states where they have legalized marijuana is increases in emergency room visits due to um, minor traumas, um, driving while impaired, 
um, the number of kids who've been exposed to it, there's a signal that there are probably increasing rates among uh, teens and young adults. Um, so I think we have to be very, very cautious, um, do the scientific research to establish where it may be helpful, and then we can go from there. I think, I think we actually agree on more than you might think, especially around, especially around research. Yeah. I think we need to establish the validity uh, much better for a number of the conditions for which we've recommended at the state level. And the only way to do that is through research, and the only way to do research is through federal funding. Uh, well, not the only way, but a huge way that research is done. And so, of course, we advocate for making it a Schedule II. Uh, it's currently Schedule One, both at the state level and the federal level. Uh, we're, we're working on the state, and of course, the federal level will require action. Um, uh, however, I do think, again, that um, you know, saying that medicinal marijuana is addictive, I think, is a debate. Um, but I have to keep coming back to the fact that if you're if you're uh, replacing opioids with marijuana, if that's the only thing that you're doing for someone, uh, that is a much better outcome for that person from a health standpoint. Um, and, you know, that sort of underlies why you're seeing it in the data. The research is showing that the number of opioid prescriptions is reduced and the opioid overdose deaths are reduced. Of course, if adult use marijuana it comes into play in the state, which is again, not something the Department of Health is currently focused on, uh, our role would turn into a much uh, more uh, aggressive role on the public health advisory that you would have on that. So of course, uh, making sure that folks aren't using and driving, uh, understanding what the lessons learned are in Colorado and Washington State and other states that have done this um, in terms of what they're equipping their law enforcement with, what they're equipping their emergency rooms with, and recognizing people who um, are on marijuana that may have gotten into an accident, et cetera. Um, of course, we would be focusing on that as a department, uh, and you know, we'd be hand-in-hand hand with most of the healthcare system in doing so. Kathy, I'd like to come to you. And, um, we had a, a question from the audience that, that raised a really good point. We've been talking almost exclusively about prescription drugs as sort of the root evil here. Um, and I know that there are statistics that have, I've heard these different ways, but that four out of five new opioid prescription users, no, correct me, I'm, it's, how, how does it, four out of five new heroin users started with opioids? Okay, I've got it backwards, okay. But that's new, so it's not necessarily, you know. But there still is a tremendous issue of illegal drugs. So I'm curious, sort of, when we're talking about prevention and risk reduction, other you know, than obviously in syringe access, what can we do? Is it law enforcement? Is it, is it more social services? I mean, where do you see the need when it comes to that sort of street drug issue? I, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think it, it's an age-old question, right? How do you, how do you stop the, the, the flow of drugs? again, particularly into the inner cities, which is where most of our programs are, are focused. I think that um, the street drugs are dangerous. And, and so the work that we do is to continually speak to our clients about, quite frankly, knowing who your dealer is. And don't buy drugs from somebody you don't know. And fentanyl is probably the scariest thing that's out there right now. And so one of the programs that, that we're working with the state on is actually... Um, providing our clients with a fentanyl testing strip so that they can check their drugs before they take it so that they know what they're, what, what they're using. Um, yeah. it, it's a huge program. I, you know, it's just, it's so critical. And, 
And uh, along with that is, again, it's 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 all about education, right? Because if you've got if you got somebody who who's looking to get high, and they see their dealer and they they get the drug, and now we're telling them to test for fentanyl, you know they've got to be careful because it, it, you know if they if they purchase fentanyl, what do they do? We don't want them going back to the dealer and, and you know accusing the dealer and you know whatever else could happen there. Um, it's so also money spent. It's so money it's, spent, need, and it's, it's money that money, is yeah. very difficult for them to yes. get. You know, when we when we talk about the difference between medical marijuana and, and heroin, the folks who come to to us who are actively using heroin are often homeless. Mm -hmm. They're not holding a job. They are struggling. They are struggling in so many ways. And and you know the folks who are coming in. Who, who are not in the syringe exchange but coming to us for other services who are actively using marijuana are still holding a job, they're going to school, you know, they're able to function in a different way than somebody who's, who's actively using heroin. Right, right. So I went on a tangent, sorry. No, that's okay. Dr. Almahal, any thoughts, I mean, from the health department, are there any sort of the prevention-based programs that you're doing that or sort of, I feel like some of that falls into the Attorney General's office, of course, but, but sort of how are you approaching that sort of street drug issue, harm reduction issue? Yeah, um, I do think, and we are the department that uh, mainly supports the syringe access programs that Kathy and others. Um, Which, I'm sorry, I just wanted to point out was not actually funded in um, Governor Murphy's new budget, but perhaps there's money available. Uh, there will be. It's part of the hundred million. Two point one million dollars. Uh, yeah. Small sum overall. It's but. part of the hundred million that yeah. we're proposing. But um, the whole uh, point is that where you're seeing programs that we have uh, that are targeted to opioids, we mentioned uh, Division of Mental Health and Addiction. Um, the whole healthcare addiction system that we have uh, falls under that. That's again going to go to Human Services. Uh, where you have syringe access programs. All of the access points that you have uh, to this vulnerable group of folks, uh, referring them into treatment and referring them into, uh, you know, trying to get them out of that hallway that is leading them to uh, terrible outcomes is really what we're trying to do. And so um, the proposed funding for this next year, what we've already been funding, uh, is of course all geared toward that. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to go back to something mm -hmm. that you had said before about uh, four out of five heroin users start with prescription drugs. Is that a, is that that is a statistic? Because I've has heard been that challenged, but, okay. but but here's the here's the challenge of it. Okay, that does not mean they were not street obtained pharmaceutical uh, okay. drugs. So um, so a quick story, if yeah. I could, about social awkwardness. A 15-year-old girl goes to the dentist to have uh, a tooth pulled, maybe a wisdom tooth, whatever, and she gets a prescription for Percocet. And uh, her mom said, you know what, you're going to a party at your friend's house, take your Percocet if you need it, mm -hmm. just take one. Um, so she goes to her friend's house and she takes a Percocet and she is the life of the party that night. Her friends. Normally she's socially awkward, but her friends are saying, uh, boy, Megan, you're, uh, you're so much fun tonight. You're... And Megan quickly learns mm -hmm. that if she takes Percocet, she can go to the party and be comfortable. These drugs are so dangerous when they get in the wrong hands, and this is where we get into the, what, what you have in your medicine cabinet, 
And this is an easy place for Megan, and I'm making up that name just for the sake of the story, to get another Percocet that mom may take or something like that. There's so many easy solutions that we can do by just making sure your medications if you uh, and your medicine chest, those medicines are put away, disposed of properly, and uh, don't let Megan and others get a hold of them and start down that downward spiral. In Patterson, New Jersey, there are a lot of young girls from the suburbs who are coming in on Wednesday when the heroin supposedly comes in and get their dose of heroin. And we have to be tremendously cautious that we are policing our own house and our own children uh, so that they're not going down that pathway. Because once they do, it's very, very difficult to climb out of that hole. Um, I'm glad you brought up dentists because we had a question about dentists and, and uh, are they are they properly policed? We have no dentists here to defend them, but um, are they properly policed enough? Are they included in the regs and, and the pres I know they're included in the prescription uh, restrictions, but, but what's your sense on that, Dr. Almahal? They are, Lilo. So they are also limited for acute pain to an initial five-day prescription. Okay. Um, and of course, the patient should be reassessed within that period for a longer period of opioids. Again, if the physician thinks that that's the best thing for them. We just heard again from Dr. Rosenberg, who said in a huge majority of the time, that's probably not gonna be the case. But again, that has to be a clinical decision. Uh, we also want though the prescription drug monitoring program, which is a tool that allows- tool. Yeah, uh, a tool that allows a provider to see what opioid prescription somebody has already gotten, where they got it from, what pharmacy they filled it from, uh, at the fingertips of everyone, including dentists, who's prescribing opioids. And so that is part of what our effort's gonna be in including it in electronic health records and trying to tie it into the interoperable network of health information that we're trying to build across the state. It's called the New Jersey Healthcare Information Network, gonna connect to the healthcare information exchanges that already exist. Uh, so that that information can be pushed to as many people as possible on the front lines. That's going to be an essential tool for uh, providers to make decisions on this. Dr. Rosenberg, um, we were speaking on the phone the other day about, um, and Dr. Almahal, I want to get your thoughts on this too. The, um, I guess there's new software that is being used in some hospitals, and, and um, the Hospital Association of New Jersey is, New Jersey Hospital Association is, is, uh, created grants for hospitals to, to try to install it. I forget the name of the software, but it, tell us what it does and how that would make a difference in this case. Uh, so there, um, there are several, but the one that New Jersey Hospital Association is funding uh, is a program called PreManage. It's also called EDI, E-D-I-E, Emergency Department Information Exchange. On the simplest level, what this does is uh, I log, you register into my emergency department. I now click on your name, and as soon as I click on your name, meaning I'm, I'm about to see you, I see there's an icon, mm -hmm. and that icon says I have some information on you that's important. I hover over that icon, and a page comes up, and on that page is uh, all the medication, it, it queries the prescription drug database, and now, prescription monitoring database, and now I can see exactly what medications you had been prescribed that are scheduled medications or anything else they track. It's a 
very, it's a very easy to use tool, but it's push. So I don't have to now log into the data bank, look for your name, have the correct spelling, all these different things are important, and it makes my job much easier, and therefore you have more compliance. On a larger, We're starting to use, it's, it's go ahead. Okay, uh, on a larger scale, what it does is I can put information in there about the patient. Uh, for instance, I have a sickle cell patient who requires a certain treatment protocol, and that will stay on. So the next time this person now registers at Hackensack or another hospital, Ramon can see that I have already come up with a treatment protocol. I am his primary care doctor, or he's normally seen at St. Joe's. We can get a telephone call so that instead of prescribing more opioids, he now knows exactly what treatment to give and then refer that patient back to me or whoever the primary care doc is. So we'll see, this has been rolled out in uh, seven or nine or 15 states, a good number, and their hope, that company, is that it will be a nationwide initiative so that when they cross state lines, uh, so if it's somebody coming from New York or going to New York, that information would be available. Right. Because my understanding is the prescription database technically is linked to other states, but it is not as seem, especially for somebody in the emergency department, it is not necessarily as easy as this particular interface that has been. And I'm curious, yeah, Dr. Almahal, any thoughts? Yeah, and, and just to uh, reinforce something that Dr. Rosenberg mentioned, uh, the workflow issues, the time that you have to take, I was a resident in emergency rooms before treating patients, you know, if it takes, a couple minutes to just log in to the prescription monitoring database. You're worried about that next patient you have to see. You might not ha have the time to wait until that comes up. So that's not a trivial piece of this. The fact that you can just hover over an icon and get that information immediately is huge because that information will be uh, presented to the provider, uh, the physician, the nurse practitioner, whoever it might be, uh, in a much easier way and allows them to make quicker decisions that are effective. Um, we've gotten a couple questions, and this is a, a question that's come up a lot in my coverage. Um, this isn't really the, the focus of the, the, the event today, but it's an important question. What are the, what's the collateral damage um, of these prescription limits in particular? Because I hear more and more about pain patients who are legitimate pain patients, dependent or not, regardless, are having trouble getting access. and, and you know, my thought is, well, the law doesn't tell their, their doctors they can't. You know, the law is not designed to limit access for these patients, but apparently it is. And I've heard horror stories of other sort of collateral damage. You know, a doctor goes out of circulation, and then someone who had conditions that were unrelated to pain can't see their PCP. So have we gone too far here? Well, uh, you know, the pendulum always swings one way or another, and the risk of treating a current problem is making another problem and having unintended consequences. Um, there is a lot of concern at the federal level, and I'm sure at many levels, um, that uh, and uh, we have, I am on the uh, Health and Human Services uh, Pain Task Force uh, out of um, Washington, D.C., and we took a lot of public opinion, um, uh, got a lot of public opinion information, and those people who have chronic non-cancer pain feel that many of the regulations nationwide 
are creating obstacles for them to maintain uh, their medication. Many of those are dependent on opioids, mm -hmm. not necessarily addicted, mm -hmm. and they're now unable to get the opioids that were able to keep them functional and managing their life and being able to work and be productive. So as we make, this is why I continue to advocate uh, for education in acute and chronic pain management, state-of-the-art acute and chronic pain management, uh, so that instead of restricting pills, we are managing people aggressively with state-of-the-art evidence-based protocols. Because I think that will bring us back to neutral mm -hmm. rather than as far as the pendulum swung. Okay. I'll just add one small sure. piece of that because I think the other piece that we see is that because of the spotlight on physicians and physician prescribing, um, physicians are oftentimes nervous when yes. they all of a sudden get, get you know, someone who either, you know, does uh, have a history in the uh, prescription monitoring database or um, that they all of a sudden are concerned. And what I end up seeing in the emergency room, probably similar to what Mark sees, is patients who their physician today says, that's it, I'm done prescribing, and then you precipitate that withdrawal and right. that crisis. And so, again, it still needs to be managed. Once you've identified a problem, you don't just throw your hands up and say, that's yeah. it. And, you know, I think that, again, it'll be a, a topic for a panel in, in the fall, but mm -hmm. I think the focus on treatment and access to treatment is absolutely crucial because our emergency rooms, we see people coming in every day who want treatment, yeah. right? You, you were mentioning it earlier in your program, that, that people want help, they want treatment, and we've got no place to send them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where that, that $100 million, that, that'd be a great place to start in terms of spending is opening access, increasing the number of treatment beds and treatment slots so that we can make sure that people actually get the treatment once you've identified that problem. And that will be a big part of our discussion in the fall. But go ahead. Yeah, please. No. No, that, that absolutely the case. A, a big part of it's going to be expanding capacity yep. for treatment and more medication-assisted treatment. So completely agree. I think I'll go just a little bit further, though and say that uh, it should be a clinical goal to get someone off of opioids. Uh, this whole thing about, you know, there's of course a clinical difference between dependence and addiction, uh, but to be managing a patient for years uh, with opioids is not the right thing for that so person. Just, but, but by saying that you're already moving palliative care, yeah. right, so palliative care, can we agree that's an exception? Different category, okay. different category, exactly. Um, and so, but, you know, if someone has chronic pain, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as the healthcare system and as providers, responsibly, we should be trying to wean that person off of opioids because you have long-term effects as well. And then, of course, there's always that risk of addiction that, that is there. If I could add to that, because mm -hmm. I completely agree. Uh, I, I have a personal, this is not coming from any agency or anything, this is just me talking. I believe that any physician who can prescribe opioids and does also needs to be able to get the person off opioids, be trained for that, and be able to give medical assisted treatment if necessary uh, to get that person off. There are too many people who I see, and we just mentioned it, who come to my emergency department now um, seeking relief of their dependency, and their physician just threw up their hands, just like you said, uh, but if that physician knew how to get the patient off and wean them appropriately, give them what they needed to, to function, uh, I think we really have a better solution. Okay. We're going to do sort of a last round with um, some next steps, but I want to, um, Senator Vitale was on a, a 
was not able to make it. He thought he might be able to get here. But um, he asked me to mention uh, a couple things that he's working on. Um, one is a program called ESPRIT. Um, I don't remember what it stands for, but it's a school-based school intervention. S screening, brief intervention, and referral go. to treatment. Okay. Um, but it's, the point is, and, and, and I've written a story about this where somebody mistook it for uh, drug testing in schools. It is not drug testing in schools, but it is a way to sort of really aggressively screen for kids who are at risk and get them into treatment earlier. Um, and there's some other initiatives around expanding treatment that he's, that he's eager to do, and I think they'll be coming in legislation in the soon. Um, but let's just go around the table, if you don't mind, and we can start over here at Dr. Solka, and um, what's sort of your next steps, your wish list, if you will. Super, so actually, so I'll just piggyback on yep. to, to Senator Vitale's comment, because one other component that we've um, uh, instituted is a, a pilot program that was started through funding through the New Jersey Department of Children and Families that actually Senator Vitale helped uh, spearhead um, to expand uh, this pediatric psychiatry collaborative. Yes. And so um, last year program, uh, under yeah. uh, then Governor Christie, uh, part of his expansion was to um, expand access statewide. Yeah. So we uh, provide eight hubs, uh, 20 of the 21 counties um, throughout New Jersey so that pediatricians, when they're seeing kids in their offices, um, can get um, connected to a child psychiatrist who can help them around mental health issues, including substance abuse. Yeah. So there's a, a requirement for screening so that these kids, as part of their annual physicals, are being screened for substance use disorders, for depression, for mental health issues. We've certainly, over the past couple weeks, seen some of the issues around depression and how important that is and suicide screening. So that's all built into this program um, and really remarkable in terms of prevention of um, further problems down the road. So that, that's one thing that I'd like to see, certainly continued funding for yep. that program. Um, but I think the, the um, focus on identifying the risk factors for those patients, so we've sort of touched a little bit on the, the issues around, you know, making sure you check the, the database, look at what people have been prescribed. But for those initial prescribers to really think through in their heads as they're prescribing medications, what's the family history in terms of addiction and other issues? You know, one, one thing that's gotten lost in the opioid um, epidemic that we're struggling with is the fact that there's still problems with alcohol, oh, yeah. still problems with marijuana, still problems with other drugs that we see. Um, and, you know, they, they all are sort of in the same constellation. That final pathway um, in the brain uh, is very much uh, the same. And so being aware of other addiction issues is absolutely crucial when you're um, prescribing any treatment intervention, whether it's for pain, whether it's for depression or anxiety um, or sleep. And so those are all areas where we need to see, I think, the focus on that. Um, and I think that, you know, it's something the commissioner said, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, is I think we need a big focus on research and being sure that before we go um, too far down paths that we make sure that we're really looking at it the way we got into this problem is because of unintended consequences. And so we want to be as mindful of that as we put forward treatment interventions to make sure they're evidence-based, scientifically-based, um, and appropriate, and not just uh, uh, anecdotal. It sounds like you're on the exact same page there with the commissioner. Final round. Yep. Uh, yep. Party, so uh, there are, there recently Congress is dealing with a opioid package uh, and in the opioid package, there's several bills. Uh, one of those bills uh, is the Alto bill, uh, which is um, uh, alternatives to opioids in the emergency department bill. It's sponsored by uh, Senator Booker and 
uh, and some of his staffs in the back here, uh, as I saw. So, um, giving a shout out, but also uh, Congressman Pascrell mm -hmm. has one that's in the House that just passed through the House. As a matter of fact, um, the reason for this bill is to create a demonstration project so we can come up with ways to expand Alto uh, nationwide and to make this something that every emergency department and every hospital and every healthcare facility starts changing their culture to decrease the reliance on opioids. My real hope and dream is that I live in New Jersey and we have a, a governor and a health commissioner that's very sensitive, as we heard, to the needs of our New Jersey residents and to help them deal with the opioid crisis. 50%, uh, I heard earlier, uh, are taking opioids this year alone or have been prescribed. Uh, so my real hope is that um, the, there will be solutions, there will be that $100 million, there will be a way that we can work together as medical and, and legislative to come up with solutions in New Jersey that really are meaningful, not just Band-Aids, but something that can help our physicians pr to provide better care, our patients and our neighbors who are dealing with uh, drug addiction uh, and want to get off, and those who choose to use, that they can no longer be a burden to the medical system mm. as they learn how to do that correctly and hopefully get into recovery. Thank you. Again, I want to thank uh, New Jersey Spotlight for having this discussion uh, in and of itself, I think, extremely valuable. Um, what I'll close with is just a statement and a mantra that I want us all to, to try to have, which is that this is not just a disease of individuals, a physical disease, the disease of addiction. Um, it's a social disease. It's a community disease that we need to address uh, much more holistically. Um, I actually see Natasia back there from Camden Coalition. Um, by housing people in Camden through a project called Housing First, um, they were able to reduce rates of addiction and bring people into treatment at much higher rates than you would ever imagine. Um, and, you know, we have to think much more holistically about community-based solutions, uh, about ways of bringing people into situations of social stability, where they have support, they have opportunities to thrive, uh, to be employed. And so that is part of the rationale uh, that we made when we made the decision to move uh, Division of Mental Health and Addiction Services back to uh, the Department of Human Services. The seamless connection with Medicaid, which serves our vulnerable communities and populations from a healthcare coverage standpoint, also uh, connecting the developmentally disabled community services and other vulnerable communities that are treated in that department uh, seamlessly with addiction treatment uh, is the way to go. And so the long term, uh, we felt it was best to do that, one of many reasons uh, that we're trying to move community-based services back there. Um, but we're, we have $31 million for housing and employment uh, and other similar social factors for that reason. And so we talked a lot about what happens in our emergency rooms today, about equipping uh, physicians, nurse practitioners with the right tools, uh, and of course, raising awareness. But I don't, I don't want us to leave without recognizing that that is a major piece of this. Right. So thank you. Right. Thank you. Um, yeah, Kathy, I just want to say, that of course, we're focused on the healthcare piece because I cover healthcare, so I guess it's a little territorial. But, um, 
But yeah, I think what's been interesting to me about the conversation over sort of the last year is how there's been this, or at least what I've heard over the last year has been, there's been a much greater sort of stepping back and saying, what do we do about the reasons? You know, what are driving people here? The deaths of despair, what are, what are, what are causing these issues? And I think, you know, it's a, it makes the, pro, the problem much more, in some ways more global and more overwhelming, but it also backs up and we start to get at the root causes a little bit, I think, so. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut okay. into your time, but please tell us what you what would you like to see. I would I would follow the commissioner, full steam ahead. <laughs> I, you know, I think the issue is when you look at HIV, the number one social determinant for HIV is poverty. Yeah. So if you're not fixing housing, if you're not fixing food stability, if you're not fixing access to healthcare, you're not going to end the HIV epidemic. And I think that when we talk about the social determinants of health. You know, what some of the, the programs that we're working with the state right now is really looking at trauma-informed care yes. and how histories of trauma have impacted our clients so that they are where they are, and then how do we help them move forward. From a, from a harm reduction standpoint, I, you know, I think one of the conversations we need to have, and it's not going to be an easy conversation in the state, is about safe injection sites. And I see my policy person's like, what are you kidding me? But I think we need to, you know, we're going to have to start having conversations about how truly to help somebody so that we can move them to treatment, have treatment readily available for them when they are ready, if we're ever going to end this epidemic. Is the safe, I don't want to have to put you on the spot, but you know, is a safe injection site something that you would consider? I mean, is it something that's been talked about in, in state circles? I, it, it, it is a very, very controversial and difficult thing. We, we have, of course, started discussing it. There's some really promising results coming out of Canada. Right. I'm not aware of anything going on in the United States now. Um, you know, that will be, you think about the challenges that Kathy's facing with syringe right. access programs from right. a local standpoint, yeah. uh, we'd have to work through those issues. But it's something we're definitely uh, looking at and considering. Well, well I, uh, I want to thank everybody um, very much for coming today. It's been a fascinating discussion, at least from I sit, which is pretty close to it, but uh, I hope everybody's been en enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And John's going to say two words. I also want to thank uh, Lilo for leading this discussion, please. And thank you all for being here. Um, as, as mentioned, as a fascinating discussion is mentioned, we're going to be doing two more of these events yep. focusing on treatment and recovery, so hopefully you can join us for that. Uh, you will see um, all of this in, in, on our website in the next few days, or at least early next week. You'll, you'll see resources as well, and we please ask you to fill out the survey if you can, and, and either leave it on the table or, or at the front desk. And uh, again, thank you all for being part of this discussion, and have a great weekend. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. The next roundtable in this series on the opioid epidemic in New Jersey will take place September 14th at the Hilton Gardens Hotel in Hamilton, New Jersey. More information will be available at njspotlight.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us and take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.